Hey everyone, this is Zach, out of character, talking to you, the audience. I make this show because I love weird fiction and I want to share it with you, but it does cost money to produce it. If you check the link in the show notes, you can make a one-time donation in any amount you like to help keep this show going. It's completely voluntary and this show will always remain free to listen. Thank you and enjoy. The Stranger, Chapter 3, The Broken Right Hand of God This is Julian Black, and you're listening to the third installment of The Stranger, a radio drama 85 years in the making. After recording the last few intros at home, it's good to be back in the studio again. But before any of you ask, no, four bros, one mic will not be coming back anytime soon. We really do rely on the chemistry of being in the same room as each other, even if we're not all on one mic like back in the early days. And some of the guys don't feel like it's a good idea to do that until we're all in the clear with this mm, coronavirus nonsense. But while we're talking about it, I did get a voicemail from the F-bomb phone line. I didn't think anyone was still using it. Some listener with a sense of humor decided they wanted to play some games. So why don't we see what our friendly anonymous caller had to say. Julian, I don't know what your fucking deal is, but this is low, even for you. I'm a longtime fan of your show, and I know that being outrageous has always been your gimmick. I've even stuck around during the whole Savannah Jackson drama. But capitalizing on the suffering of families is just, it's sick. Whether these newsreels are real or not, whatever your great-grandfather thinks he saw, if he even is real, I don't care. My Nana's older sister, Abigail McDonald, went missing in April of 1935, and the police never found her. Nana never, ever recovered from the experience. When she died in 2006, her mind was almost completely gone, and she kept begging and crying for Abigail, and I sat by her side and I watched this happen. I don't know where you dug these records up from, but your sick little horror show has to stop. <laughs> I just, uh, wow. That, uh, that was an impressive amount of pathos for a troll. But good effort, really. I do appreciate a solid prank as much as the next person with an intact sense of humor. So, uh, you know, thank you for making my day. And to anyone out there worried about it, I had Michelle look into it, and there are no records of any missing persons reports from 1935 with any of those names. So unless someone just covered up seven whole disappearances, which would be impressive even 85 years ago, then there's nothing to worry about. That said, I'm still having weird dreams. I generally feel, I don't know, super uneasy lately. I'm not the anxious type normally. Maybe it's uh, the lengthy isolation playing tricks on me, you know? Cabin fever, real John Carpenter shit. Sometimes I see kids hanging around the neighborhood just sort of staring at me, which is like, <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm a minor internet celebrity. I'm used to it, but... I always do a double take now, looking for those uh, those black insect eyes. They're always too far away to be sure, but uh, anyway, that that's crazy talk, right? Like I said, cabin fever. This is worse than when I binge-watched all those creepy Slenderman videos in 2009. Anyway, 
This one's intense, more so than usual. The action really picks up in this episode, and I really hope you'll enjoy it. Without further ado, my great-grandfather, Thaddeus Black in The Stranger. A deep fog shrouded the Atlantic. Approaching the Halifax Pier, I caught my first glimpse of the country I now live in. The country I will likely die in. In America, newcomers were welcomed by a great statue, a magnificent metal woman birthed in France and gifted to the former colony. I don't know how I would have felt about that. An understated greeting of fishermen and sailors felt like home. But home is not a place, is it? Home is a sense that you are loved and cared for. My parents were good folk, loving and strong, but not strong enough to survive the Spanish flu. After that, I couldn't bear to look at the farmhouse, couldn't bear to work the fields. This place was once my home, now it was reduced to a mausoleum. In 1920, I sold the farm to a man who'd come home from the Great War, wishing for a new life. I understood. After all, I shared his wish. I took what few possessions I could not live without, and I boarded the ship to Canada. I made my way as a dock worker in Halifax for six months, renting a room for $5 a week. My accent was still strong, but not quite out of place here. Nova Scotia, after all, means New Scotland. Once I'd earned enough, I bought a train ticket to Montreal, where I worked in a dairy bottling plant. I learned enough French to get by, though most of the city was mercifully bilingual. Next was Ottawa, then down to Toronto, St. Catharines, Hamilton, and back to Ottawa. Why am I telling you this? Am I hoping to find comfort in making an accounting of my life while I still can? How far outside the bounds of the ordinary must a person travel before they begin to question if they have lost their mind? I am constantly questioning my own sanity of late. I feel confident that I have seen these things unmarred by any fog of confusion or ill mind, and yet, if I truly were mad, then any confidence I might claim would be a false confidence. I followed him tonight, the stranger. He was lurking around outside my home again, a tall, slender shadow of strange proportions, bathed in a street lamp's glow, beckoning, terrorizing, a stain on my consciousness, indelible and terrible. Theodore was already asleep and I told Emily I simply needed some air. Keeping her out of this has been difficult, 
but I need her to survive. If anything happens to me, she must protect these tapes. The truth cannot be allowed to die, even if I do. He continued to watch me, bathed in the street lamp's sickly yellow luminance. A shadow pretending to be a man. By the time I dashed outside, he was no longer standing there. I circled the street, scrambling to find him. But the street was empty. No, not empty. I was missing something, some vital detail my body knew before my mind. I scanned the shadows, and a tiny figure caught my eye. It was Chloe Ann Curry, the fourth child to go missing. She stepped into the light, and I saw that her eyes had become shiny, black orbs set in her skull, and her skin seemed shallow and brittle, just like the others. Her dress was filthy and frayed, and her bare feet were covered in mud. She waved to me, and I followed. How could I not? Hello, Mr. Black, she said. Would you like to play with me? What game are you playing? I snapped. This was not the first time one of the children spoke to me. Just two nights ago, a boy, I think he was Benito Cortez once, knocked on my door. He whimpered and begged to be let in. I knew in my gut that to do so was to damn myself. It's a very fun game, she said. I think you'll love it so much you could just die. I asked her where the creature had gone and she pointed to an alley then ran away, giggling, into night's black embrace. I bolted into the alley. An unmistakable silhouette blocked the exit. He was waiting for me. It's so painfully clear now that it was a trap, but in the moment, desperation had deprived me of sense. I haven't slept in days, haunted every moment by this specter. So when he exited the alley, I pursued him, abandoning reason for the promise of immediate satisfaction. This was the wrong choice. I can no more make sense of what I saw next than the moth could make sense of poetry or philosophy. I rounded the corner out of that alley, and I saw the stranger swell and begin to come undone like a threadbare sweater too often pulled at. He collapsed. Could he truly be dead? The ruin of his wretched, inhuman body was still crumbling, but I swear that parts of it still held the shape of bones. Human bones. A jawbone, phalanges, others I did not recognize, all decaying quickly, as though they had started rotting long before tonight. The stench was unbearable, a damp, cloying scent. Could he have led me here to witness his death? Would he now release the children? Or were their lives tied to his? Would they fall into ruin too? 
I did not have very long to ponder these questions before a shadow fell over me. There was pain, too quick for me to comprehend, and then blackness. I felt myself being moved, and my mind drifted like a tide, ebbing and flowing from the darkness and into the hum and yellow tungsten glow of street lamps. I had the vague sense that there were many hands holding me, and then, for a time, nothing. When I worked on the docks in Nova Scotia, there was an accident that very nearly killed me. A rope, worn down by salt and moisture and time, snapped, and the crate fell into the water. I jumped in after it. If I lost this cargo, I might not be paid for the week. I gave no thought to my safety. This is what drowning feels like. It is not that the waters do not allow breath, but that to breathe them is agony. Time is stretched into an unusual shape. You spend an eternity in cold, darkness, slowly losing feeling, slowly losing death. I was certain I would die. I felt the light that was my life up to that moment being snuffed. It was like a monstrous thing pulling me down into cold desolation. It was like the right hand of God clutching my throat. I lost consciousness. A sailor saved me, though now I cannot recall his face. My impulsiveness had come unfathomably close to killing me that day. Tonight, oh, tonight it is an even greater miracle that it did not. I awoke under a bridge. A familiar shadow towered over me. I was certain that it could not possibly be. I had seen him rot from the inside out, had seen the ruin of his form up close, and yet there was no denying that it was the stranger standing over me. He took off his hat in a mocking gesture of deference. He squatted, coming face to face with me. He had a voice like moth's wings. I won't hurt you, he said. I was stunned. I appreciate that, I said. What else could I say? He grinned. It was the most terrible thing I have ever seen. By then my eyes had adjusted to the dim light. His face had a mottled gray complexion unlike any human man. I breathed in that same fecund reek of dampness. Tiny white tendrils groped forth from his flesh as if searching. His clothes appeared to be made of the same material as his skin. You misunderstand me, he said. I would like very much to hurt you. It would bring me exquisite pleasure 
and it would make my children so happy too. But it would draw too much attention. A local celebrity like you disappearing, especially now that you've drawn undue attention to my children. So I won't hurt you unless you give me no choice. But make no mistake, Mr. Black. If I decide it is time for you to die, there will be nothing in this world or any other that will save you from me. His words burned into my mind. He wrapped his queer, inhuman hands around my throat, and in that moment I was drowning in the Halifax Pier all over again. An incomparable horror crashed over me like the waves of the Atlantic. It was like a monstrous thing pulling me down into a howling void. It was like the broken right hand of God clutching my throat. My children will be watching you, Mr. Black, to ensure compliance. And then he was gone. I am alive by his mercy, and I believe his threat was genuine, but I am of two minds. When I became a journalist, a spark had been lit within me, and I had vowed to use that spark to shed the warm light of truth into these cold, desolate places where secrets and lies build their nests. But I have no reason to believe that the monster who would abduct children and change them into his servants would stop at just killing me. My family, Theodore and Emily, I might put them in harm's way. But I do not think that I could live with myself if I let this go. And like he said, he would rather not draw further attention to himself. Perhaps it is reasonable to believe that he would stop at me. One man dying is a tragedy, but a whole family, that may be too much attention, especially for him. I must weigh, hold on. Who the fuck are you, and how have you gotten into my home? Come now. You know that's no way to speak to a guest. Will you let me in? Say you will, and we'll discuss our mutual... friend. I have no idea what you mean. Thaddeus Black is a man who cares far too much about the truth to expect to become a convincing liar now. I would recommend you give up the effort. You call him the stranger. In truth, he has had more names than mortal minds might comprehend, and he is not a he. Not in any way you would imagine. Are you making tea tonight? I'm parched. That's part three done. Like always, a big thanks to everyone who helps make this possible, including Michelle Gray for converting these tapes to digital for me, and an especially big thank you to our mystery caller. Whoever you are, you little scamp. Keep making trouble out there. There's no sponsor this week, as we're going through a few uh, transitional sort of things with the network, so 
I'll just end by giving my last thank you to you, the listener. Thank you, and I hope you'll keep coming back for more. The Stranger is written, performed, produced, and mixed by Zach Emery. The voice of the angry caller was Sarah Tiny Bubbles Evans. The voice of the unexpected guest was Kale Brown. These events and characters are fictitious, and even if they weren't, would anyone believe you? All brands and public institutions referenced are either fictitious or used fictitiously. All music featured in this show is written and performed by Zach Emery. You can find it on SoundCloud. You can find us on Instagram or Twitter at TheStranger1935, or you can give your message to the next moth you see. They know much more about the nature of things than you might expect. 